morning, Chelton. It is uh, good to be with you again. I've been looking forward to this, and I really, really appreciate the time that we have spent in the praise of our Savior. And um, talking with Becca during, in between, I'm just really grateful for the leading and worship of your uh, praise team, as well as the singing together. As we sing together, we are affirming and reminding and encouraging one another of the truth of the gospel. And uh, this has been a great, great joy, as has been times in the past. Um, Shelton, as I mentioned in the first service, is, has begun to feel like my church home away from my church home. And so it's, uh, it's a good thing to come back and be with you. Two weeks ago, uh, Ingrid and I were with several Christians who had just returned from Israel. And as you can imagine, they were exuberant in their description about the sights that they saw, the uh, impact that it had on them spiritually, how it opened up the Bible to them in ways that previously they didn't know. And uh, it made me think, as I have done over many years, uh, you know, I haven't made it there yet. Uh, the closest I've been to the Holy Land is I drove past the Holy Land experience in Orlando some summers back. <laughs> but I, I do want to experience the real thing. I know many of you have, have done that. And like countless other believers, the reason that I want to go is because I want to see and be in places whose names I've read for years in the Bible. But above all, I want to um, see where Jesus lived, where he uh, preached, where he prayed, where he performed his mighty deeds, where he died for our sins, and where he rose again. I want to, as the familiar words say, walk where Jesus walked. But if I were to be really, really honest with you and first to myself, there are footsteps of Jesus that I am not very eager to trace. And I'm not talking about literal footsteps in particular locations, but rather I'm talking about the figurative footsteps that uh, Peter makes reference to in 1 Peter in the second chapter of the letter in verses 20 and 21, where he says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This morning, uh, we're continuing in a series based on Peter's first letter, in which he stresses that Christians are called to live as strangers, as exiles, sojourners, aliens, even in the land of which we might be native. Yet, even as we're pushed to the margins, to the periphery of society, by those who are in opposition to Jesus, we're commanded to love and evangelize those who are hostile to us and to the gospel. One commentator put it well when he said, while we are here, we are pilgrims, and yet at the same time, we are ambassadors. 
Today, we're going to be focusing on verses uh, 1 through 6 from chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and we want to pay special attention to what he has to say to Christians experiencing unjust suffering, particularly unjust suffering from those with whom we engaged in life before our conversion, with whom we may have shared the, the passing pleasures of sin, deeply engrossed in various kinds of immorality and ungodliness. But now, since our conversion, those who may treat us as enemies, those who may um, treat us as objects of derision, ridicule, scorn. So please follow along as I read, either in your Bible or it's up on the screens, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. These are the words of God. The series uh, that you've been in the midst of is particularly timely for us as American Christians. Because as others have said in prior weeks, the church in America is no longer in the position of cultural power that it was once in. And I believe that that is actually a good thing for the church and its life and its mission, because God uses weakness to display his power. We see mounting hostility, ostracizing, and even in some cases, outright aggression directed at those who name the name of Christ. Yet, it's necessary to put things in perspective lest we exaggerate our situation. As bad as things may be in the States today, it's likely that they're going to get much worse before they get better. It's also the case that as bad as the threat to Ameri the American church may become, or might become, there is considerable distance to go before the cost of following Jesus for us is in any way matching that of brothers and sisters around the world, even today. And it's unquestionably true that the kind of suffering we face is not qualitatively comparable to the kind of suffering that 
the believers to whom Peter was writing faced. Scott McKnight, who is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, gets it right in his commentary when he says, what we ought to admit is that our kind of suffering is strikingly unlike the persecution the Christians in Asia Minor endured, for their suffering could end up quickly in death. But the good news for us is that wherever we are on the continuum, the spectrum of intensity of persecution for the sake of the gospel, the words of God through the Apostle Peter apply to us. The counsel, the instruction, the imperatives that he gives are for us today. So what guidance does God give us through Peter for following Jesus through unjust suffering? I've got three points, each consisting of two of the six verses in chapter four. And the first point that Peter gives is this, arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. The, the passage begins with uh, the word therefore, which means that it's somehow related, it's connected to something that has gone prior to it. And um, since it is an exhortation that is based on Christ's suffering, where Christ is the model or the pattern, we have to look for the last place where Peter addressed similar elements, and the answer to that is in verse 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18 of chapter three, where Peter wrote, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And everything that follows after that, leading up to chapter four, verse one, is something of a parenthesis. I'm not saying it's not important. It's though something else enters Peter's mind, he goes down that route, and then he comes back in chapter four, picking up that thought. And his reasoning is this, that since Jesus suffered to the point of death, those who follow him in faith are to arm themselves with the same attitude that was his. This is in some ways Peter's version of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind or have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ. But Peter is making something of a different point here. When, when we think about arming yourself, I don't know about you, but when I think about arming myself, I think about doing something to prevent my suffering. You arm yourself so as to minimize pain, suffering for yourself, in some cases perhaps to inflict pain or suffering on someone else. But what Peter is doing is telling Christians to arm ourselves with an attitude so that we will be able to suffer. If we just took that instruction to heart, Perhaps we wouldn't be so disillusioned and disappointed when we experience hardship and opposition for Jesus' sake. Jesus himself prepared his followers for the inevitability of suffering for those who followed him. 
That's why he said, for example, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, the instrument of death daily, and follow me. The word translated attitude there is a, a word that refers to a, a resolve, a thought, a mindset. It's the same word that you find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this familiar passage where uh, the writer says, the word of God is living and active, and he talks about its judging the, the, the thoughts and attitudes or intentions or motives of the, the heart. So Peter says it's vital for Jesus' followers to arm ourselves with the same attitude or resolve that enabled Jesus to face the afflictions meted out to him by his enemies, eventually culminating in the cross. So what was that attitude? Well, we're not left to guess that, because earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 23, Peter tells us, there we read that when Jesus was insulted and cruelly treated, he entrusted himself to his Father, whom he knew judges justly. Later in chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says that those who suffer according to the will of God should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's just another way of calling us to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. The remainder of verse 1 gives further explanation for adopting this attitude, and there are a number of grammatical issues that come up in the text that I am going to spare you from that lead people to kind of wonder how the verse should be rendered and to whom it's referring. I just wanted to show you how two other major um, Bible translations handle it. You can look that over. And as you do, uh, you might be able to detect that the, the issue that is involved is uh, the identity of the one who has suffered or suffers. Is it Jesus or does Peter have Christians in mind? And um, I think the greater weight of evidence is that Peter has in mind here Christians. Um, and the reason that I think that is twofold. This is part of an exhortation that he's giving to Christians to follow Christ in suffering. So the one who suffers, I think, is clearly he's talking about a Christian. Um, the second reason is, whoever is in mind here, Peter describes as no longer living the rest of their life for evil human desires, but for the will of God, and that certainly cannot be applied of Jesus as though there was some period during his life when he was living for evil human desires. He's talking here about Christians and their new life. But maybe another question arises for you as you consider the rest of verse 1, and I know it did for me. What does Peter mean that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin? Is he advocating some kind of perfectionism? Uh, does he have in mind something that suffering automatically brings about, such that one who has suffered is um, no longer going to experience the conflict of sin? I don't think that that is the case. I did find helpful the thoughts of a New Testament scholar by the name of Karen Jobes, who in her commentary on 1 Peter says this, those who suffer unjustly, 
because of their faith in Christ, have demonstrated that they are willing to be through or done with sin by choosing obedience, even if it means suffering. So the idea is that when one is willing for the sake of God to endure suffering, that is evidence or a demonstration of their willingness to be done with sin. But it is not a claim of perfectionism or anything of that, but it is talking about the, the resolve. Well, the second point Peter makes concerning how are we to follow Jesus through unjust suffering is in the next two verses. And um, believe it or not, I tried to condense this point, but I couldn't, so it's rather long. But it is this, realize the destructiveness of your past paths and expect abuse from those who still walk in them. And in these verses, Peter tells his readers, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. I just want to pause there and point out uh, something that, that we don't really see in our English translation here. The word that Peter uses for pagans here is Gentiles. And it's almost certainly the case that the majority of the people to whom Peter was writing were technically non-Jewish. So they were ethnically non-Jewish. We see indication of the fact that they had come from a, a, a pagan background in such things as chapter 1, verse 18, where Peter says that they have been redeemed from their feudal way of life that they have inherited from their ancestors. So why does Peter here use the word Gentiles of non-Christians? Because that's what he's, he's addressing here. The, the answer is, lies in the fact that he's not referring to Gentiles ethnically, contrasting Jews and non-Jews, but he is using this imagery of Gentile to speak spiritually of those who are now, through faith in Christ, members of the people of God, in contrast to those who are still lost in their sins and outside of Christ. In verse 3, he describes the former way of life in which his readers were once engaged. And the, 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 the words that he piles up here are words that describe unrestrained desires for such things as sex, and food, and drink, idolatrous worship. And he says that the time they spent engaged in those activities in their non-Christian lives is enough. Now, probably most of the people to whom he was writing were adults who had for years spent their lives engaged in these things. But this is a good place for a word to those of you who may have come to Christ early in life, and as a result, you have sought to live upright for a long period of time. Or maybe you're here as a teen or a preteen, and you're a follower of Christ, and lurking within you is this... Um, 
FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. What? What, have, what am I not getting? What might I be missing if I came to Christ early and sought to live fully? What is it that I might be missing out on now if as a young person I'm seeking to follow Christ and leaving those things behind? I want to tell you, first on the basis of the authority of Scripture, and then secondarily from personal testimony. You are not missing out on anything good. No matter how young you were when you came to Christ, whatever time you spent indulging sinful desires and behaviors, it was enough. Despite what you fear you might have missed out on, what you might be currently missing out on, you're not missing anything that is nourishing to you. You are not missing anything that is truly and lastingly pleasurable. You are not missing anything that you will ever regret by turning away from what Peter calls wild and reckless living. Peter is uh, realistic, and he describes the reactions of the believer's non-Christian peers. And he, he describes this in two ways. Um, first, shock, and then hostility. Look at the first part of verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living. I like how an earlier translation of the NIV renders this passage because it brings out a word picture that Peter uses um, in, the, in the original language. If you have an older version of the NIV, it reads this way. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, where dissipation would mean wasteful um, expenditure. Over the last few weeks, we have seen on the news numerous videos of uh, cities that have been devastated by excessive rain and flooding. Um, maybe you have seen some of them where homes taken off their foundations, vehicles that weigh a lot, just floating downstream as though they were toys, and sometimes people stranded on their roofs and so forth. I want you to um, think about that, and I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine that you were caught in a flood of that magnitude with other people, and somehow you managed to make it to shore and safety, and then the people that you left in the flood uh, cried out to you. But they weren't crying out out of peril, nor were they crying out, you know, help me, but they yelled out to you, why'd you get out? Get back in here. That's the imagery that Peter is using. They are shocked. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Well, why are they shocked? 
There's two reasons I think that uh, Peter has in mind. First, they're shocked because they can't imagine anything more pleasurable or delightful than the things that they are immersed in. But secondarily, they're shocked because these now Christians used to be their partners in crime. You used to drink me under the table. Don't you remember all the good time we had and all of the carousing we were doing, and now you're turning away from that? Astonishment. But surprise quickly turns into social rejection and abusiveness, as we see in the later part of verse 4. In part, this is due to the convicting power of the life of someone who is seeking to live holy. There's a pricking of the conscience and a, a desire to discredit the motives and the changed behavior of anyone whose uprightness exposes guilt. One commentator says that the pagans in the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. But in the first century, refusal to engage in the kind of things that Peter is talking about here was also seen as a great betrayal, as, a, as an expression of disloyalty, especially when it involved a turning away from the, the rituals, the idolatrous rituals that people of this time were involved in. Writing about Thessalonica, one scholar explains the strong sense of betrayal that non-Christians felt when Christians declined participating in normal cultural activities. He says, Family members who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities. The exclusivity of the Christian religion, their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any god but their own, deeply wounded public sensibilities. Moreover, it was highly dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the gods whose wrath was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, and freedom from earthquake or flood were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. So not only was this a, an expression of disloyalty, but there was the fear that these Christians were somehow a threat to the public good. So that gives you just a glimpse of why it was that Christians were objects of derision and abuse by their non-Christian peers. So in verse 4, when whoever read this letter from Peter to the church, when these believers heard they, they are surprised that you do not join them, and they heap abuse on you, they weren't hearing this as just some kind of generic, vague, abstract they, but rather I believe that they were thinking about people from their family and from their close circle of friends this was resonating with. I imagine that there were thoughts in response to hearing those words, such as, yeah, that's just how my mother or my father or my siblings are treating me now. Or maybe, yeah, I can relate to that. The friends I used to, to spend so much time with now want little or nothing to do with me, and they have been saying some very cruel things about me. And maybe today, when you consider those words, they bring to mind names and faces of 
people with whom you had real close relationships who now, as Peter says, heap abuse on you because of your following Christ. If that is the case, take heart. Peter says that's no strange thing. That's no oddity for the one who would follow Jesus. But then the question becomes, um, how are we to deal with that? How are we to respond to those who are heaping abuse upon us, even those with whom we once had such tight-knit relations? Surely, it's not supposed to be one of retaliation, because that's not the way of Jesus. The third and, and final thing that Peter says with respect to how it is that we are to follow Jesus through unjust suffering is this, remember the coming judgment. Peter is reminding these believers, and so I think it's legitimate to conclude that he wants them to remind themselves and one another of the fact that those who are treating them in these ways are going to face the coming judgment of God. They will have to give an account to God. But we have to be careful here, because on one hand, Peter isn't advocating this um, dispassionate delighting in the thought of them being judged. I think what he's doing is that he is saying, justice does not depend upon your bringing it about, and therefore, by reminding them of the judgment to come, he is seeking to restrain us from retaliating, taking vengeance, seeking to right things. It was that settled confidence that God would judge that enabled Jesus to endure the abuses he suffered. Think back to 1 Peter 2, 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Because God will call everyone into account, we share the good news of the gospel, telling people what God has done in order to rescue sinners from what our sins deserve. And that's what Peter says in verse 6. But who does he have in mind when he says that the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead? And again, there are, as you check the commentaries, there are differing views as to who is in mind here. But I think that who is in mind is those Christians who have actually died. And here is one reason that I think that this is so. One of the commentators that I read said this, we must remember that the death of Christians created a problem for the church in the time of the apostles. Paul had to write to reassure the Thessalonians, those who had died had not missed out on the promise of the return of Christ. Perhaps the opponents of the gospel, here he's um, talking about uh, Peter, perhaps the opponents of the gospel also used the death of Christians to mock the Christian hope. 
They said, where is this coming, he promised. The death of Christians seemed to confirm their skepticism. This would surely be heightened if some of the Christians who had died had been martyred. They would have died under human judgment, as Peter says in verse 6. But as he also notes there, they live according to God with regard to the Spirit. Over the last uh, few weeks, as I have watched and read news, and as I have um, surveyed social media, I have been repeatedly struck by just how relevant and how necessary the message of 1 Peter is to the church in America today. Not just because there are signs of um, growing hostility against Christians and uh, in terms of its ramping up, but more so because there are signs that in response to that hostility, Christians are in danger of putting more confidence in the way of power as the world defines power than in the way of Christ and the cross. We do need power, but the power that we need is that of the Holy Spirit to arm ourselves with the attitude that was our Lord's, to look upon the ways from which he has redeemed us, to recognize their destructiveness, their futility, and to expect that those with whom we once reveled in such things will treat us with hostility, and we need the Spirit's power to keep before us the certainty of the judgment to come and the fact that God will make all things right, and therefore it is not for us to try to balance the scales now. So because we do need the Lord to so empower and enable us, would you join me in praying towards that end? Our Father, we, um, when we hear messages about suffering, when we hear about how it is that you would have us respond to it and follow the way of Christ, we are so prone to rationalizing and seeking to justify ourselves, thinking things like, well, that's idealistic, but we've got to be practical. Forgive us for our unbelief and help us through it. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, we would, for your glory, for the welfare of the church, and for our witness in your world, be willing to follow our Savior, to walk in his steps. And when the time comes, when we are placed in a situation of suffering for the sake of the name, may we, like the early disciples, be joyful. Not because we delight in pain, but because it is evidence of our union with him. And so we pray all of these things through him, our great high priest, our Lord and our shepherd, your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.